We're in 1 Samuel this morning, chapter 5, and we'll get in partway of chapter 6. In chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, God has brought forth judgment upon Eli, the high priest, and his sons, who were also priests. And he's brought judgment there at Shiloh. And we read in chapter 2 how God was so displeased with Eli's sons that he desired to kill them. That isn't the God that we know in Christianity today. We live in what we call this dispensation of grace. And it isn't the God that most of us are familiar with, the judgmental side of God. We know our Lord and God as a gracious and loving God, full of mercy, full of grace. And to read that God desired to kill Eli's sons, it's contrary. It goes against the thinking of most Christians of today. Many modern Christian teachers and leaders do not agree with the sovereignty of God. They transform God into the image of meekness and lowliness and a God of love who would never uh, do anything judgmental or harsh. Scriptures that tell how God is a God of jealousy offends some people like Oprah Winfrey. She turned away from her Christian roots when she heard that God was a jealous God because that didn't fit her image of God. So the image of God can be one-sided in modern thinking, limited to God simply being a God of mercy and grace and a God of love, never doing anything judgmental or harsh. But when we study the Old Testament, we see God, he is sovereign. And he brings judgment upon sinful wickedness, as he did with Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. But Israel is coming through their time of judges there, and they're becoming a nation, and they're becoming that people that God has chosen as his own special people. And as God's people, Israel has experienced God correcting them, God chastising them. And as New Testament believers, we experience abundance of grace. And it can appear strange to us that God would judge sin and corruption so completely, so severely. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. In other words, all things are lawful, but not all things edify or helpful. And as God in his spirit works in us to sanctify us, 
his Holy Spirit begins to put personal limitations upon each life that he calls to himself. And I use this example all the time, but it's a good example, so I'll use it again. God has removed the drinking of alcohol from my menu. But I cannot preach drinking of alcohol is a sin for others. But drinking for me is sinful. Now, I will preach against getting drunk and how that is a sin because Scripture is clear. It's replete with its warning against being drunk. And as we continue our walk with the Lord, our individual walk with the Lord, God, by his Spirit, will guide and direct us into individual behavior that's pleasing to him. Our relationship with God is a personal relationship. And God has been very angry with Eli and his sons. God, full of mercy and grace, has the Philistines. He uses the Philistines to kill the corrupt sons of Eli. And as Christian believers, we are constantly discovering new boundaries that God has placed on our life by his Holy Spirit. So this morning we'll continue in 1 Samuel, and we will see how God deals and judges not with Israel alone, but with Israel's enemies. 1 Samuel chapter 5, 1 through 12. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to Ebenezer of Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen up fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon, both palms of his hands, were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor those who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away, Gath being another Philistine city. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron, 
So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistine and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go back to its own place, though it does not kill us and our people. For they were a, <clears throat> there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Ashdod was a Philistine city on the Mediterranean coast of what is today southern Israel. Dagon, uh, this image of him, he was half fish, the lower half, and half man, his upper half. He was a mythical idol, and the Philistine had all types of perversion and sexual rituals that they honored Dagon with. Bear in mind, God has just judged Israel for their corrupt religious uh, activities and their behavior. God now turns his attention to the pagan practice of Dagon worship. And I don't think I'm out of line here. You, you be the judge of that. But when I think God is going to have a little, I think he's going to have a little pleasure in reducing Dagon to rubble. God in his sovereignty enjoys himself in dealing with man's idols and the foolishness of man's idols. The plagues on Egypt. When Moses would go before Pharaoh and pronounce a plague, they were God-inspired. And most of the plagues that God brought upon Egypt were directed towards their idols and their little false gods. Jesus, I don't believe for a moment, was a prankster. But I think he enjoyed a good laugh with his disciples some, some evenings when they would gather around their uh, campfire or whatever. I think Jesus enjoyed his disciples. The Philistines, they have captured the Ark of the Covenant and brought it into the house or the temple of Dagon. They set the Ark of the Covenant near Dagon, but come morning, there is Dagon fallen on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. The priest of Dagon, they run in there and they get him back up on in his little position and they make sure he is firmly situated there next to the Ark. But come the next morning, there's Dagon, and he's fallen down again before the Ark of the Covenant. And this time, his head and his hands are broken off. We only have left the belly and fins of Dagon. <laughs> and the priest of Dagon, they're afraid. They're so afraid that they won't walk on the threshold there in their little uh, house of worship in the temples set up for Dagon. But God has just begun to deal with these foolish Philistines. 
Verse 6, God strikes the Philistines with tumor in the city in and around Ashdod. I like the old King James Version where the tumors are called what they are, hemorrhoids. They're painful hemorrhoids, and they make even the sitting down painful. The people of Ashdod want the ark out of there. They want it away from them. And they realize that the hand of God is harsh towards them and their God, Dagon. Their solution, as they consult their leader, is to spread the misery, send, send the ark over to Gath, a nearby Philistine city. Gath, as was with Ashdod, God strikes Gath. And the men there develop these painful hemorrhoids, painful tumors. Gath can't wait to move the ark to Akron. Akron cries out, they have brought the ark of God here to kill us and our people. Three different cities are being struck by the hand of God because God is wanting to make a point to them. You have to ask this question if you look at this logically. Why don't the Philistines repent of their sinful behavior and worship of Dagon? It's obvious that it is against God. And the only answer I think you can come up with is the Philistines would rather enjoy the pleasure of their sinful activities that are related to this idol Dagon. They don't want to worship the true and living God. And it has become more than apparent that their God Dagon is inferior to this symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant. And there Dagon lies, all broken up, in Ashdod. And it's God's way of saying to the Philistines, repent of your idol worship. But they would rather have the pleasures of their sins than to repent and worship the true and living God. These cities of the Philistines, they're first-hand witnesses of the powerless God that they've set up, Dagon. They fully realize the error of their ways. But do they turn and repent? No. They just pass along uh, the ark of God to the next city and see God destroying the next city. The Philistines enjoy the perverted worship of Dagon, the sexual pleasures that are involved there. And they would rather live in their sinful pleasure with death and destruction than to turn and repent. The Philistines have a solution. Send the ark back to Israel. So we won't have to suffer these deadly plagues 
in these tumors that are so painful. It's not unusual, though, for man to enjoy and justify his sin. I have had, personally, complete alcoholics tell me my only sin is I drink a little too much. I have had drug addicts tell me how he was on top of his drug habit only for him to die of an overdose shortly thereafter. I was praying with in our prayer room in Modesto Calvary Chapel with two young ladies to receive Christ when they stopped me. They wanted to know if they could receive Christ and still live with their boyfriends. And I said, well, you let God take care of that. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll let you know what his will is, trying to soften it a little, trying to tell them that God loved them and he understood this. But they, they wouldn't be persuaded. They're not going to be sidetracked. Is it a sin for me to live with my boyfriends and can I become a Christian and still live with his boyfriend? They trapped me. They backed me into a corner. And I said, got to deal with that. It is a sin for you to live with your boyfriends unmarried. I couldn't say anything else. And that only points out, sinners take pleasure and comfort in their sin. Drug addicts love drugs. Drunks like getting drunk. Sex addicts, they're addicted to the pleasure of sex. It's that simple. Thieves steal, liars lie, and I could go on and on. Until a sinful victim finds themselves trapped by their sin, in bondage to their sin, they don't dislike their sin. Thus, we have rehab businesses, which is a multi-million dollar business in our country. And sin is pleasurable until it traps you. Scripture tells us the way of the transgressor is hard, and it is. But let's read chapter 6, first 14 verses, about the ark's return to Israel. 1 Samuel 6, 1 through 14. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for, for the priest and the diviner, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means return to him with a trespass offering. And then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats. 
now there's an offering, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors, images of your rats, and that ravaged the land, and you shall give glory to God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts, as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts, when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go, that they might depart? Now therefore make a new cart, Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold, which you are returning to him, as a trespass offering, in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Then the men did so, and they took two milk cows and hitched them to a cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest of gold, rats, and images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And the Lord of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and he stood and he stood there, a large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart, offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And we'll continue the rest of that next week. The priests, the diviners of the Philistines, they have religious practice down. They return the ark of the Lord, and, and they put a trespass offering on the ark. And they hitch up two milk cows to this new cart. Two milk cows with young, unweaned calves, and they see if the cows will go to Israel away from their calves. To the Philistines' surprise, the cows go straight forward to Israel. They're lowing, they're bellowing as they go. They're lowing, they're bellowing as they go. I got cows, I know what that's like. <laughs> Let me give you a little cow info here. Somewhere around six to eight months old, you try to separate and wean a calf from its mama. Weaning that calf will cause heartfelt problems between mother and calf. I don't know who bellers the most, mama or the calves, but they will keep you awake at night calling to each other if you just separate them with a fence. For several days they will carry on 
and let you know how mean you are being to separate mama from calf. So when we read that these two milk cows go straight away from their calves, you know it's the thing of the Lord. It's that simple. It's a sure sign that the ark is supposed to be in Israel. They're in Israel. They're happy to receive the ark back. And they sacrifice the milk cows as a burnt offering. And apparently, when they do this, return the ark to Israel, the plague of tumors and rats cease there in the Philistine area. So how does this relate to us? God has you and I. We are witnesses for his kingdom. Paul in Acts 26, and we'll read a passage there, will make his defense before King Agrippa and Festus there at Caesarea. Paul has been arrested for causing riots in Jerusalem, and he's been kept a prisoner by Agrippa and Festus, and they're waiting for Paul to maybe give them a bribe where they can do away with this trial, but no bribe comes. Paul has made his defense, citing his conversion as a practical conclusion to Scripture. So let's read Acts 26, verses 24 through 29. Now as Paul thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself with much learning, and it's driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I freely speak, knows these things, for I'm convinced that none of these things escape his attention, since this thing was done, not in a corner. King Agrippa, Paul's addressing Agrippa now, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. King Agrippa, the great-grandson of Herod the Great, he is half Jew and half Idumean. And he is very familiar with the Jewish law, for he governs Israel, a Jewish kingdom. Paul in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And he answers his own question, I know that you do. And now we have the most monumental decision of Agrippa's life. Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. <clears throat> a decision 
made by Agrippa that is present tense. Present tense. Because it haunts Agrippa today, the decision that he made. Remember the rich man in Hades? He had total recall of all his earthly life, all his dealings with Lazarus and their conversation with Abraham. How this rich man wanted Abraham, and it was our scripture reading, to send someone to warn his brothers not to come to this place he is in of torment. Perhaps the greatest pain, the greatest regret anyone in Hades or hell will be, I don't have to be here. It was a bad choice, the reason I am here. That will haunt anyone who has ever heard the gospel, and God makes sure everyone understands that he is God. Read Romans 1. Those two young ladies that I prayed with or wanted to pray with for them to receive Christ, they chose to stay and live with their boyfriends. I don't know what became of them, but I do know if they do not awaken to their need of salvation, they will have unspeakable regrets having chosen a relationship over salvation concerning their eternal souls. I know that. You know that. We've all made errors in judgment. We've made bad purchases, bought things we shouldn't have bought. We've made bad investments. Things went bad. Things went sour. We've all had bad relationships of sorts. With everything within me, to anyone that hears me, I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not make a bad decision concerning the most precious thing you have, your eternal soul. Be wise with your soul. It is staggering to me. It's almost beyond my comprehension that we are allowed to choose or reject the salvation offered by Jesus. We are allowed that. The free will of man. You've heard it said, I've heard it said, well, when I get older or when I've lived my life, then I, then I will turn to Christ. That is nothing more than a polite way to reject Jesus. That's just politely rejecting his offer of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And for heaven's sakes, choose wisely. Choose wisely. 
We'll have people in the prayer room that will be happy to pray with you if, if you want to receive Christ. I assume that I'm talking to a room full of believers, but if there's one out there that needs Jesus, don't leave here without choosing Jesus. Amen. Let me get you to stand and we'll pray. Lord, we've seen that you dealt harshly with Eli and his sons, Israel, your people. But then you turned and you dealt harshly with the Philistines, wanting them, desiring for them to return and turn from their idol worship. But they preferred the pleasures of their sin. Lord, I openly pray for anyone who hears your message of love. Here's the gospel message. We'll jump at that opportunity to be part of your kingdom. If for no other reason to escape damnation and hell, that's a great reason to turn to you. But let them turn to you for the relationship that they can have with the living God. Let them enjoy the abundant life of knowing you, Lord. We thank you for providing us salvation. What a great blessing. Don't let anyone be so foolish as to reject it. And we pray for this in your name, Jesus. Amen.